Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host as always, Daniel Levy. Today I'm going to be breaking down the main event between Vicente Luque and Bilal Muhammad. And it's going down this Saturday night live at the Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. You got the number four welterweight on planet Earth, Vicente Luque, rematching the number five welterweight on planet Earth, Bilal Muhammad, in a main event showdown with title implications. I mean, the winner of this fight is either going to be Next in line for a title shot, one fight away from a title shot. They're going to be right there in title contention. Uh, man, it just seems like there's a welterweight tournament going on. I mean, you just had Hamza taking on Gilbert Burns. You got Leon and Kamaru fighting. Allegedly, now Hamza is going to fight Colby Covington next. And then you got this Saturday's main event between Bilal and Vicente. So big, big times going down right now. Important and crucial times and moments going down in the welterweight division. And let's get right down to it. So obviously you guys know the deal. Vicente Luque and Bilal Muhammad fought before in uh, 2016. It was actually the same night that Conor McGregor won champ champ status when he defeated Eddie Alvarez via knockout in the second round. And it's just crazy to think about how much time has passed. Uh, you know, since that fight, just to put it in perspective, Vicente Luque has gone 10 and two since the time that these, that these guys fought the first time, Blah Muhammad's gone 10, one and one. You understand what I'm saying? They both had 12 fights. They both got 10 wins since then. So in a sense, it's a completely different fight, but at the core, they're still the same guys. I mean, when you're talking about a guy like Vicente Luque, you're talking about one of the most potent finishers in UFC welterweight history. And that's not an opinion. That's a fact. I mean, he's literally got the second most finishes in welterweight history, literally right behind Matt Brown. And if Vicente Luque goes out there and finishes Bilal Muhammad, he will have the most finishes in welterweight history. He'll, he will be tied right there with Matt Brown. And that's, I mean, that's obviously a huge feat. And on the other side with Bilal Muhammad, if he wins a decision, he's actually going to go up there and be up in the ranks with a guy like GSP for most decision wins in UFC history. Now, I know a lot of people give him heat for that, but I kind of think that if you're a gambler and you're giving a guy like Bilal heat for going to decision, that's, that's a very square look, in my opinion. Because, like, since when does that kind of shit matter? Isn't winning all that matters? And, like, I remember when Kamaru was on his come up, everyone always criticized him for going to decision. But if you bet against Kamaru, you lost. 100% of the time. Same thing with GSP. I remember there was that stretch when he was winning all his fights by decision. And people were giving him shit. But if you bet against GSP, you lost every single time. So to me, like, let's, you know, maybe as a fan, you can talk about, oh, one guy's more exciting than the other. Okay. You might have, you might have a legit argument there. But when we're just talking about cashing bets and picking winners, I mean, I don't give a fuck what they win by. I just care that they win. So that being said, there's a lot to break down here. When you talk about Vicente Luque, you talk about the danger factor that he brings to the table. I mean, obviously, I already alluded to it. Second most finishes in UFC welterweight history with 13. But we're not just talking about a one-trick pony here with Vicente Luque. We're talking about um, the calf kicks. He can chop people down. You start to shoot sloppy takedowns on a guy like Vicente Luque. You guys already know about his Darce and Anaconda series. I mean, the guy's coming off two straight wins uh, via Darce choke. And then back in the day, you guys remember when he submitted Nico Price as well. Even um, his sophomore appearance against Alvaro Herrera had a beautiful Darce choke in that fight. And then I mentioned the calf kicks. I mentioned the submission series, but what about the 
the one-punch knockout power that a guy like Vicente Luque brings. I mean, the timing of that left hook. He's the kind of guy that, in the midst of the chaos, you start to drop your hands on a guy like Vicente Luque, and he will put you to sleep. And it's not just that left hook. It's also that right hand. I mean, this guy, Vicente Luque, is one of the most dangerous guys in welterweight history. And that's the bottom line. You have to be on your P's and Q's the whole time when you're fighting a guy like Vicente Luque. But are there some, you know, places to exploit in his game? In my opinion, yes. And what I mean by that is we have seen a guy like Vicente Luque taken down before, um, as recently as his last fight against Michael Chiesa. We even saw a guy like Randy Brown go out there and blast double him. But if you want to go back, you know, to some of his losses, you know, the Leon Edwards fight when Leon took him down three times, even all the way back to the Mike Graves fight when Mike Graves was able to go out there, land seven takedowns on Vicente Luque and control him. Now, obviously, since that point, Vicente Luque is a completely different fighter, and you can't judge him based off that. Just like I'm not trying to, you know, base my prediction for this fight based off what happened last time. You know, like I said, just to put it into perspective, Barack Obama was president the last time these guys fought. Conor McGregor won champ champ status more recently than the last time Vicente and Bilal fought. So it is a completely different fight, and they are they have evolved tremendously. However, certain dynamics of the fight still remain the same. I think the knockout upside, you have to give to Vicente Luque, no questions asked. And, you know, Bilal Muhammad comes out here fighting with his ego and wants to stand and bang with a guy like Vicente Luque. Well, that's just going to aid Vicente to getting the kind of win that he wants. But the thing I like about this guy, Bilal Muhammad, is that... <laughs> Firstly, he's put on a lot of size since that um, first Vicente fight, and he's been out there fighting some really tough guys outside the top 15 and inside the top 15. Outside the top 15, I mean, he's fought the best guys that are not ranked. I'm talking about the guys like the Tim Means, the Randy Browns, and uh, Vicente also fought Randy Brown. But the reason I'm bringing up guys like that is because I would say like that's pretty much as good as it gets for outside the top 15. And he comes into the top 15, has you know the Leon Edwards fight, which... He lost round one of the Leon Edwards fight, but then he was poked 18 seconds into round two, couldn't continue. We never saw how that fight was going to play out. Now, you definitely got to give that first round 10-9 to Leon Edwards, but that was round one of five rounds, right? I mean, I saw, I know y'all remember what Nate Diaz did in round five, right? But, you know, I'm not even going to bring that up. All I'm just trying to say is that although it would appear that Leon was on his way to winning that fight, we only saw one round. We only saw five minutes and 18 seconds of that fight play out. So I, I'm still curious what would have happened. But then he fought Damian Maya. And here's where it gets interesting. Because we know exactly what Vicente Luque is going to do. Vicente Luque is not going to come out here and throw any curveballs. We know the calf kicks, the punches, you start shooting sloppy takedowns on him. You know, don't leave that neck exposed. Like, that's understood. But what I like about Bilal is that you see him mix it up. And what I mean by that is the fight with Damian Maya, he had to keep it standing the whole time. You don't want to go to the mat with a guy like Damian Maya. So he goes out there, he stuffs 20 of 21 takedowns against a guy like Damian Maya, keeps the fight standing the whole time. Then the next fight against Wonderboy, well, you don't really want to stand and bang with a guy like Wonderboy who actually beat Vicente and beat Jeff Neal, two guys that have beaten Bilal Muhammad. I know MMA math doesn't mean shit, as you guys know. And Bilal goes out there and actually lands seven of nine takedowns. And the reason I'm bringing up those two fights, while Damian and Steven have nothing to do with Vicente at all, what those two fights showed 
is that this guy can come out here and approach the fight with a completely different game plan every single every single time. So you go back to that Diego Lima fight, and that's an important one to bring up. Um, the way to beat Diego Lima, one way is to knock him out. Bilal's not exactly known for that one-hitter quitter. He's more known for breaking guys, and boy, did he break Diego Lima. Now, with that being said, there were some openings showed in that fight that Vicente could possibly capitalize on, such as the calf kicks. And that's really important to bring up because we know that Vicente's got one of the best calf kick games, not just in the welterweight division, but in all of the UFC. Now, that being said, I'm curious to see if the calf kicks are as readily available here for Vicente as they were for Diego. Reason being this. Against Diego, Bilal literally walked him down the entire time, put the pressure on him. Therefore, as a result, there's going to be some openings for your opponent. I'm curious if he's got that approach here against Vicente because you walk into the fire with Vicente, I mean, there's going to be some heavy stuff coming back at you. But that being said, one thing that I really noticed, I think around the time that Bilal fought Lyman Good, was the lateral movement really started to get on point. And he's starting to develop this game where, you know how I was talking about Volkanovski's feints last week and Volkanovski is so goddamn amazing. Like people don't understand how elite his fainting game is because they just like to talk about, oh, he's got heavy hands. Oh, he's this, he's that. But like the base of all that is the fainting game. Like you, you really do not know what's going to come at you with, with Volk. He just has you guessing the whole time to where you get desperate. You leave yourself open and you leave yourself open. And that's where that's where he hits you with unexpected things. And while Bilal has a different game than that. One similarity he does have that he's starting to really, you know, one thing that's really starting to blossom in his game is his misdirection and the fact that he can keep you guessing the whole time. And in order for him to win a fight against a guy like Vicente Luque, he's got to keep him guessing the whole time. Because, again, like I said, you go out there and you stand and bang with a guy like Vicente Luque, don't cry when you get knocked out, right? You go out there, you shoot you know, a sloppy ass takedown, give him your neck. Don't cry when you get choked out. And that's just the bottom line. So Vicente, uh, Bilal's got to keep Vicente guessing this entire time. He's got to faint bad. He's got to faint the takedown attempts, faint the strikes. And if he wants to have success banging with a guy like Vicente, he's got to faint those takedowns to the point where Vicente starts to drop his hands. Then Bilal can get off on some shot standing. But if he just comes out here toe to toe, stand and bang, then he's going to get knocked out again. But I don't think he's going to do that, man. I think not only has he felt the power of Vicente Luque firsthand, but he's a very cerebral guy. The reason I brought up those last two fights, the Stephen Thompson and the Damian Maya fight, was just to um, paint the fact that he can switch it up. He can't come out here with completely different game plans. And he's not a guy that fights with his ego, which I really admire. He just comes out here, wants to figure out exactly what's the path to beat you. And once he gets that, capitalize on that and go out there and, and secure the victory so another thing i like to talk about with a guy like Bilal muhammad as well as a guy like chito vera is i feel like five round fights benefit those guys if Bilal muhammad is still conscious by the time this fight gets to the championship rounds well then i think the momentum is going to swing in his favor and that's another thing. Like I was talking about with Cheeto Vera. Like I love the fact that we're starting to see a guy like him in five round fights. He's about to fight Rob Font, and in a three round fight, man, I think it's like a pick 'em fight. In a five round fight, I think that favors a guy like Cheeto Vera. He's actually the underdog right now. 
So that being said with this, if Bilal isn't severely compromised while this goes in the championship rounds, that's where I think he can start to take over. And here's the thing. The guys that have all beaten Bilal, they all have something very in common with Vicente Luque. And, you know, Vicente Luque happens to be one of the guys that beat Bilal Muhammad. To beat Bilal Muhammad, you have to bring that danger factor to the table. And that's exactly what Vicente Luque brings. Like I said, one of the most dangerous guys in the history of not just the welterweight division, but of the sport in general. I mean, we're talking about a guy that knocked out Tiago Santos back in the day on the Brazilian regional scene. Vicente Luque is as dangerous as anybody in UFC history. And when you look at Bilal Muhammad's losses, the Alan Juban fight, he got rocked severely early in that fight. Now, back to the five-round talk. And you guys heard my interview with Sodiq Youssef last week. And if you haven't, go check it out. You know, because I was talking to him about the Arnold Allen fight, and I was like, well, look, we all know Arnold Allen clearly won the first two rounds. We also know that you clearly won the third. Had that been a five-round fight, maybe you would have gone out there and won that fight. And Sodiq was like, I don't even want to entertain that talk because he feels like it's a loser mentality because it kind of discredits Arnold's win. Whereas I'm thinking like, dude, I think Arnold's fantastic, but I'm just factually stating that had you had two more rounds to work, it did seem like Arnie was starting to fade. And one thing I've noticed in Vicente's fights is that he does start to fade, man. I mean, he was six seconds away from losing a split decision against Brian Barberena, but the danger factor was there. He knocked him out with six seconds left. So you can't take that away from him. But to you know, piggyback to the Alan Juban fight, the reason I brought that up is because you know, first two rounds, you give the Alan Juban 100%. But that third round, it really seemed like Bilal Muhammad was starting to break Alan Juban, was starting to take it to him. And that was another instance where I felt like if he had two more rounds to work with, he could have actually gone out there and won that fight. Well, now he does have two extra rounds to work with. However, two extra rounds to work with a guy that Vicente could be losing the whole fight. And he just finds that one opening for that clean, precise, accurate, and powerful left hook. And he's putting you to sleep. You could be winning the whole fight. You could be landing all these takedowns on him. You start getting tired from taking this guy down over and over. He's surviving. That's when you leave your neck out there and that Dars gets snatched up. So Bilal's got to be on top of shit this entire fight. So that was the issue with the, with the Juban fight. Then the next loss he had was to Vicente Luque. I mean, you guys know the deal. You leave an opening against a guy like Vicente, and it's going to be good night, Irene. The next loss he had was to... Jeff Neal. And the reason that fight went the way it did was there was a massive speed advantage from Jeff Neal. And that was Jeff Neal prior to him almost dying. You know, the dude had sepsis. The dude had congenial heart failure, which, you know, God bless Jeff Neal for being able to bounce back from some shit like that, man. But he fought Bilal prior to that. And the speed was just way too much um, for Bilal Muhammad that night. Now, I don't think that Vicente Luque has that same speed advantage that Jeff Neal had. However, I do think that Vicente Luque has way superior power to a guy like Jeff Neal. Now, so basically the point I was trying to make here was all the losses of Bilal Muhammad have a similar, a similar uh, recurring theme. All these guys bring danger factors to the table, and that's what Vicente Luque also brings. Because the reason I'm bringing that up is because, like, when you look at these other guys in the division, such as the Colby Covingtons, you know, Colby's not really known for knocking anybody out. Colby's more so known for outworking people. Bilal Muhammad's never been outworked in a fight ever. 
the guys that beat him hurt him. So for Vicente to come out here and win this fight, he has to hurt Bilal Muhammad. And it's not just the Juban or the Luque fights where Bilal has had trouble. Bilal's been dropped in other fights as well. Um, like specifically the ones he's lost, you know. The Juban fight, he got dropped three times. The Luque fight one time, the Jeff Neal fight twice. So that's the big concern here. If you're backing Bilal Muhammad, is we don't want to we don't want to get hurt to the point where we're, we're severely compromised. Now, there's a chance that Bilal could get dropped, recover. I mean, this guy's got insane cardio, insane conditioning, and possibly, you know, come back after some early adversity. Uh, Michael just asked, wasn't Edwards outworking him? Um, Edwards won round one of five. Um, we never got to see that fight play out. Just because you lost one round of a five-round fight does not mean you're going to lose the next few rounds. I mean, maybe he would have, maybe he wouldn't have. We don't know. The fight never got to play out. Now, also, this fight's in the small uh, cage in the, at the apex, which some could say favors the wrestler. I mean, it's going to be easier to close that distance. That's for sure. But at the same time, during the stand-up exchanges, you are going to be sweating every single moment. And that's just the bottom line. Now, back to Vicente Luque. Some things I want to bring up. Like I already you know, praised the power, the accuracy, the timing of this guy's shots, his composure in there. What about this guy's chin? I mean, one thing about Vicente Luque, so the positive is his chin is absolutely insane. The negative is I think that Vicente Luque eats too many shots. And he actually, we have, what do we have? Like a fucking close to 15, 16 fight sample size of Luke in the UFC, the guy eats more shots than he lands. Now, oftentimes that's not going to hurt him because when he lands his shots, dudes often hit the floor and um, they, they, they don't wake up, right? So oftentimes it doesn't bite him in the ass. But when we're talking about optics in terms of fights that go to decision, Bilal's very good at getting fights to go to decision. Vicente gets hit a little bit too much for my liking. Vicente, another thing about him, and guys, I'm nitpicking here because you know what kind of respect I have for Vicente, but we got to point out the positives and the negatives, the pros and the cons of each guy. The other thing is that I have noticed that, you know, Vicente, he loves to stand and bang with everybody. He loves to get into firefights. You give one, I give one. You take one, I take one. And as a fan, I mean, how can you not love that fucking style? And the fact that he's won as many fights as he has with that style just speaks volumes to the kind of competitor he is, the iron jaw he has. But I do think that he tends to fade as fights go down the stretch. And I would be very worried about that against a guy like Bilal Muhammad if Bilal Muhammad is still there by the time the fight gets to that point. Now, that last fight against Kiesa, because I talked about how like Mike Graves took him down seven times and controlled him, which would be the game plan here for a guy like Bilal. However, that fight was all the way back in 2015. So like how much stock are you going to put into something that was more than half a decade ago? At this point, it's closer to a full decade than half a decade, right? So, but that Kiesa fight, Kiesa comes out there, takes him down right away, takes his back. My issue with Kiesa, you know, he's a very strong guy. He's very deceptively strong, but might I say, and he's very long, lanky, is that it's a... Uh, is a very good hammer, but he's not a very good nail. Kiesa tries to do too much. Kiesa tries to rush situations, and I felt like Kiesa got overexcited, 
taking the back of Luke that, you know, he did a little bit too much. He got bucked off. And then when it was his turn to see if he could take it, no, he couldn't take it. I mean, he kind of panicked, which has happened in multiple Kiesa fights. And he got tapped out, which has also happened in multiple Kiesa fights. I think the fundamental difference here is that when Bilal takes down a guy like Vicente Luque, he's not necessarily in a rush to, oh, I got him down. Now I just got to choke him out and we're going to go home. Bilal's down to drag to you know drag you through that meat grinder for all five rounds. He's not in any kind of rush to give up uh you know position. It's you know position over submission, which again, if we're talking from a fan perspective, yeah, we love to see these flashy finishes. We love to see guys that are gonna take risks, possibly give up bad positions to go for that finish. But as a betting man and just as you know, someone that admires winners. What I do like about Bilal is that, you know, he's not going to come out here and just, you know, if he takes the back of a guy like Vicente, he's not just going to rush this finish. He's cool riding out the round, coming out there for that next round. Now, the scary part about that is the next round starts on the feet and you got to do it all over again. What kinds of reads and adjustments is a guy like Vicente Luque going to make between rounds to, to nullify a guy like Bilal? You know, uh, so raw torque just said, Dan, am I being talked into Bilal decision? Here's my thing, man. Here's my thing. Possibly. However, I mean, let's not write off a, a fourth or fifth round Bilal finish, man. The reason I'm saying that is because Vicente Luque not only has been taken down in multiple fights, but he tends to fade down the stretch with that style. How can you not? How can how can you not fade down the stretch? I mean, Vicente Luque goes balls to the wall. And as a fan, how can you not love that style? But as a betting man, you know, if this fight does hit the third or fifth rounds, that's what you got to be most worried about. And Dan Goldstein just brought up a good point. He said, bro, if you are looking to be talked off a Bilal bet, you're talking to the wrong guy. Just bet him straight. Gone versus Ghana rules. Exactly. So the point Dan Goldstein is trying to make here is that like, you guys hear me fucking give this example every single episode of the show. You know, when I bet Francis and Gannou straight, I think it was like, what was it, plus 130, plus 25? I don't remember the odds um, against Gannou. Everyone was like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why don't you just take him? Hey, yo. Do you know how pissed I would have been if I bet Francis from that fight? You understand me? If the guy you're picking is the dog, just take him straight up. But let's not sit here and act like these first few are not going to be a... Let's not sit here and act like... Vicente, the guy with the second most finishes in the division's history, can't come out here and finish this fight, finish a guy that he's already finished before, right? So you cannot discredit a guy like Vicente Luque. Um, now, I do have to bring this up, and I'm sure you guys know, as much of a fan I am of Vicente, I am very biased towards Bilal for a multitude of reasons. Um, firstly, like I'm very close with him and his team, like talk all the time. Um, I had Bilal my prior to him to UFC, and I've stuck with him this whole time, this whole time through the ups and downs of everything. So like I'll owe soft spot in my heart, but at the betting window, I haven't let the wave. I think I'm not one or 10 in one betting on Bilal. So I pick my spots, you know, if I'm not comfortable betting, I'm, I'm going to pass. But this is one that I I fully acknowledge will be a sweat, 100%. I mean, 
Like I said, the guys that have beaten Bilal Muhammad all bring that danger factor to the table. That's exactly what Vicente brings. That being said, the path to this is 100% there for Bilal Muhammad. When he, he firstly, lateral movement going, get those feints, feint the takedowns at first, hands of, of Vicente to drop a little bit, tag him with some shots. Vicente be like, oh, shit. So you like a little bit. That's when you mix in the takedowns, take this guy down. And from there, you know, just because you take a guy's back, you, you don't you don't freak out like Michael Chiesa and just sell out a couple minutes into the first round. Bilal's cool keeping that control time. And the other thing I like about Bilal is you guys know how I've been talking about the whole year about these can just shoot relentless takedowns after takedown after takedown. Not get this the first few get stuffed, whether we're talking about the Mirab Devalishvili's, we're talking about that, that kid Ronnie Lawrence on a higher level, the Islamos. Bilal Muhammad's one of those guys. I don't think he gets discouraged if the first few get stuffed. It's just if you do get stuffed, you gotta protect that neck, buddy. And one would actually be worried about in the situation that is firstly, I think that his Darth defense will be on point. For those that don't know. Standard defense to the Dars is to put that forehand mat, um, trapping the leg, and he's such an expert with that Dars that he can prevent people from doing that. But here's what I'm actually kind of worried about: um, a few of these takedowns gets is that Bilal might be so worried about, oh shit, like this takedown didn't work. Here comes the Darsh or Anaconda. Maybe I should just pull guard. Then Vicente is on top of him the rest of the round. That's something I'm worried about. I'm actually more worried about than I am all getting submitted. I, I have a hard time getting submitted. However, you know Vicente is such a specialist. Back to regurgitating these stats that we've been bringing. Second most finished in history. I mean, I, just because other guys can't submit you doesn't mean I can't submit you, right? And on the feet, we know uh, if Vicente can you know, go to the bank and deposit some of the early on in the fight, what's going to happen down the stretch? We'll also have that same explosiveness on the take. We still be adding those takedowns. Now, according to the Diego Lima fight, yes, but Vicente is on a Vicente is number four on planet Earth. We're talking about a completely different. Different to fight, different danger, a completely different skill. So, there's a lot of things to be concerned about on both sides. Guys bring a lot to the table, but both guys are vulnerable in aspects where the other fighter excels. So, that to me makes it a dog or passion. Now, if thing is a repeat of the first fight. That listen, man, Vicente's just got Bilal's number. He's out here and finish him. Well, then I understand why you're taking Vicente at you know the slight favorite price, and it makes sense to me. I'm under the chance of different, you know, a lot of fights that have had rematches and they often don't really go the same way. Like, you look at like Riley, first time they was a vicious first round head kick knockout right and you think like what could go different if they rematch well they rematch and that's a close five more you look at like machida and shogun first this technical five round battle next time shogun just goes out there and starches him in the first round you look at like say showtime pettis versus benson first time round war next first round finish you look at a fight between uh to keep on this topic 
facing Cowboy Cerrone, you know, first time was a first round Devis finish. Y'all remember, I know y'all remember that shit. Pettis looked amazing that night. Next time they had the war, that could have gone either way. So no two fights are, fights are created equally. And so much time has passed. Like I said, both guys have had 10 wins <laughs> since last time they fought. They're different fighters to the point where they've evolved to you know, from prelim fighters to number four and number five on planet Earth. But a lot of things are still the same. Hey, Luke is still that poacher. Bilal Muhammad is still that. Like, Bilal Muhammad might not be the most athletic. Look, for compared to normal human beings, he's athletic as fuck. But at the UFC level, right? You know, Kamaru's man's got a higher vertical jump than you know, so it's more thing where blood mentality to push and break is down the stretch, and that's what he's got to do here. Now, the other thing I want to bring up that Bilal's fighting during Ramadan, which much respect, man, dude. Like the balls that you have, dude, for fighting during Ramadan because I know a ton of guys that are willing to fight during Ramadan, and I understand why. I mean. Now, someone that's more educated on the topic, you know, if I'm talking out of turn or the dude just say my audio is breaking up, fuck that. Let's me off. Hold on. Let's switch mics and see what happens. Is this better? Is this better, y'all? Um, hopefully my audio ain't breaking up anymore. But, you know, like, is this, is this better or not? Uh, tell me what the deal is. But, Okay, he says it's better. Just keep me updated on that. I apologize. Uh, you know, sometimes you, uh, you know, plays tricks on me. How bad was it, y'all? Like, not what I said, because man, I was talking a lot, man. Um, but anyways, back to the Ramadan. So, firstly, the balls on Bilal Muhammad to fight during Ramadan. I'm worried about, and and if I'm out of turn or if you know, parents on it. Oh, he says he says I'm breaking up still. Hold on, let me let me do a refresh and see uh see if that helps. What's up guys? Still cutting up a little bit, man. Man, that really pisses me off. I'm sorry about that, y'all. Hold on a second. Let me see if I can fix something really quickly check okay we're gonna have to use the the mic from the camera hey can y'all hear me now i just gotta talk a little bit louder i'm talking into the camera mic if my mics are are fucking up are you, is it good or not y'all let me know um i'd much prefer to use my mics though let me try again Yo, what's up now? What's up now? Is it working or not? Is it good so far? Okay, cool. Y'all keep me updated on that. I truly apologize because that really pisses me off when that happens. I don't know why the fuck it happens from time to time. But if we are good now, then we're good now. And we'll keep it that way. But anyways, back to the Ramadan talk, man. I really wanted to fucking talk. That. So firstly, the balls on this guy to fight during Ramadan. Much respect because I know a lot of other 
that would have said, man, I know guys that have turned down fights because of that. But what I'm most worried about, and again, guys, if I'm talking out of turn, please let me know and pay the topic. But it, is it true that, you know, he's able to like drink any water, have any breakfast up until hopefully his fight ends after the rundown so he can get some liquids in his system? Because, like, I want to see Bilal in there at 100%, man. I don't want to see. And he's not the kind of make excuses for something like that. You know, he's the kind of guy that he says it makes him stronger. He says it makes him more focused. And, dude, I just respect so much, man. So, hey, real quick, everything sounding good, though? Keep going. Give me a thumbs up if it's good. Because and for you all to miss what I'm saying about this stuff. Better? All right, cool. Sorry about that, y'all. Sometimes like, you fucking invest all this money in the studio and then uh, and then it pulls some shit like that. Frank said I should use my phone mic. How exactly am I supposed to do that? Like, I got a mirror and... Man, this studio shit, brother. Okay, it's Skippy. It's Skippy. Dude, that happened last week during my Chaskelly breakdown. The shit really pissed me off. Um... But on a side note, let me try seeing if the camera works. So just hold on, hold on, bear with me for one second. Check, 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 check. Hey, is this good right here at all? I know the quality is not as good, but this is a different mic. It's the camera mic. Can y'all hear this? Just give me, give me the, the thumbs up if y'all can hear this from the camera mic. I just got to speak up a little bit for it. So yes or no? This works? Okay. So I'm just going to lean forward a little bit because the, the camera is right fucking here. And I got to make sure you all hear what I have to say. Anyways, back to the Ramadan talk. Much respect to Bilal Muhammad for fighting during Ramadan. That's some grown man shit right there. It's just my question is, like, is he going to be properly hydrated? Is he going to have food in his brain? You know, because, like, I want to know, is this, since he's the main event, luckily, um, he's going to fight, hopefully, by the time sun goes down. And the only the only thing is that he's over there in Vegas. So it, it's like three or four hours earlier than where it is here. Over here, it's going to be sundown. Over there, I'm not sure. So, man, I just hope Bilal Muhammad can sneak in a good meal, get hydrated before the fight. Because I don't want to see him eating any shots from Vicente Luque with no water or food in his body or brain. So that that's what I'm most worried about, honestly, is, you know, him not coming in here, him coming in here compromised. But at the same token, when you hear his uh, fight week interviews, the guy sounded, I mean, the guy sounded like he was on point. He did not sound compromised one bit. So that's something that, you know, and he's fought during Ramadan before. So I don't know how much stock to put into that, but it's obviously a factor of concern because you're talking about a professional athlete. You want to make sure, like, you remember Aljamain talking about how he didn't get that good breakfast in the time before and this and that. Um, so Frank Jordan says water is permitted, but I thought water, uh, oh, only water from sun up to sun down. Um, sun up to sun. Okay, okay. So he's at least going to be hydrated. So that's good. That's good. And then hopefully he can sneak in a little meal. Like hopefully light goes down, he can sneak in a good little meal, and then he's good to go. But back to 
let's just put that stuff on the on the back burner. I was uh, worried about that. Hey, Joe Mitas, when you say fucking up, are you referring to the mic? Or are you referring to something else? Let me know. Uh, let me know what you mean, brother. Um, but back to this. I think it's pretty clear cut here. I think that Vicente Luque has a massive danger factor in this fight. Punches, kicks, submission attempts. And Bla Muhammad obviously has to come in here, get him guessing on everything, faint the takedowns, faint the strikes, have this guy mesmerized. Don't when he thinks you're gonna strike, that's when you take him down. When he thinks you're gonna take him down, that's when you strike. Bilal Muhammad's got to come in here with that perfect game plan. And I think that if he does, he can win this fight and cash as a plus 155 dog. But you obviously can't write off the fact that, you know, back to what we've been talking about this whole time, that Vicente Luque is one of the most dangerous finishers in the history of the UFC. Has already finished him once. Like, and it could even be a spot where, like, Bilal is dominating the whole fight. One fuck up on the feet is all it takes against a guy like Vicente Luque. But from what I've noticed, Vicente can be taken down. Randy Brown took him down. Kiesa took him down. And as much as I respect Randy Brown um, and even Kiesa too, I think that Kiesa got overexcited when he took his back. And, and you know, he started playing some games that Bilal's not going to play. Bilal doesn't take unnecessary risks. He's cool holding that top position and controlling you. And if you can do that, man, and survive the, the stand-up exchanges, I think he can come out here and cash as an underdog. But, again, every stand-up exchange is going to be a sweat. Like You can't sit here and act like it's not going to be, man. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Vicente is so damn dangerous. He's so opportunistic with his finishing ability. So the way I'm talking, it seems like a 50-50 fight. The reason it's not lined as a 50-50 fight is because of what happened the first time they fought. And um, people just like Vicente's style more. But, guys, as from a betting perspective, like who gives a fuck who is more exciting? It's all about who's going to win, and it's all about where the value on the line is. So. You guys know who I, you guys know who I'm going with. I'm gonna take the underdog shot on Bilal here. It's like Bilal, just please don't get knocked out, and there's a good chance that you win this fight. Um, and Joe asked me how has he looked in his Ramadan fight. So I know the Juban one, his UFC debut. First two rounds were rough, but he went out there that third round and uh, he he started breaking a guy like Juban. So I know down the stretch that. Look, one thing about Bilal is his conditioning is second to none, man. This guy does not get tired, and this guy can push and push and push. It's just about, again, the guys that have given Bilal trouble are the guys that hurt him. And Vicente Luque is more than capable of not just hurting Bilal, but hurting anybody in the weight class. So that's what we got to worry about. Um, I think I covered everything regarding this fight. Damn, some dude saying Bilal is on is on roids. Interesting. I, I never really thought about that, man. I thought he was just a hard worker. Um, I mean, he passes all his drug tests, man, and he's been very outspoken against steroid users. So the only reason, like, I'm even entertaining you saying that, I'm not entertaining the possibility of him being on steroids. I'm just entertaining you bringing up that comment because, yeah, there has been a significant, you know, 
change in his physique, but like, can't we also like attribute that to a strength and conditioning program? Can't we just attribute that to look the first time that he fought Vicente was in 2016. It's been more than half a decade. Like that's a lot of time to come out here and put in some work in this, in, in the weight room, man. So yeah, he's put on size, but I mean, you can put in work in the gym and put on size. It doesn't just mean he's on roids. So I personally do not think the guy's on steroids. Um, so you guys know the dynamic of this fight. Danger factor goes to Vicente. Long, long grind, you know, term aspect of the, of the game. You know, who's going to swim in those deep waters goes to Bilal. And Bilal, don't get finished. And I think there's a very good chance you win this fight as long as he is not severely compromised somewhere along the way, which we know Vicente is an expert at severely compromising his opponents. So I think that's all I got to say about this. Um, I am inclined to take the dog here. Um, Dixon said Luke trains with a bunch of 170 pound animals at Sanford, not to mention his main training partner is Gilbert Burns. Bilal doesn't bring anything special to the table here other than conditioning. So, he does so. In other words, you're saying he does bring something special to the table because conditioning is a big fucking thing in fights, especially when you're talking about a guy like Luke, who a early go and like watch the fuck out. But we have seen him fade in fights before. The Leon Edwards fight comes to mind. So, I mean, conditioning wins fights, man. I mean, so like you saw how Kamaru, what Kamaru's come up was like, man. He was winning all those fights on conditioning, man. Kamaru didn't start knocking people out until his most recent fights. Ah, and my boy, the Quag said conditioning and chain wrestling. And that's back to the point I was making. These guys that can shoot takedown after takedown after takedown without getting discouraged, they're a matchup problem. So Aline Bilal, he's the underdog. I'm going to take him. Remember, I am biased, but I truly believe that I gave Vicente all the credit in the world, that I broke down what both guys can do objectively, and that I gave a decent breakdown of this fight. So, you know, but I have to give my disclaimers. You know, I am an honest guy. And real quick, how's the audio sounding, guys? Like, is this okay? Because, you know, it's kind of pissing me off that I got these fucking nice-ass mics and they're fucking skipping and cutting and shit and i have to talk into the to my camera mic but if y'all can hear me then the show must go on so y'all can hear me everything good on that let me know all right cool i appreciate it all right so i think that covers i think that covers the the main event now let's talk about some of these other fights so just to be a hundred percent transparent with you guys like i always am I did not put much work in on these other fights. So what, you know, I've had a really crazy week. My dog had to get like an emergency surgery. Thank God she was okay. Um, but that's more important to me than any of this shit, bro. So I've just been dealing with a lot of stuff, you know, outside, uh, you know, the podcasting, but I still wanted to give you guys a show. And I still do know some stuff about, uh, about these fighters on, on, you know, on the rest of the cards. So I'm just going to give you guys exactly what I know. But just keep in mind that, you know, this is all off the top of my head. This is not, you know, I did not <laughs> sit down for hours watching tape on these other guys. But I'm going to do my best here, so bear with me. Co-main event of the evening in the middleweight division. We got Kyle Boralio. He's 10-1, and 1, taking on Gadzi 
Omar Gadziev, who's 13 and 0. But that 13 and 0 is kind of questionable, and I'll get to why in a second. And currently they got it, Gadzi Omar Gadziev, minus 130, and the comeback on Kyle Boralio is plus 110. Now, the reason I say that 13 and 0 on Gadzi Omar Gadziev is a little bit questionable is for the following reason. So you look on Tapology, and this is kind of interesting. So this dude makes his pro debut in 2013 but then it says he had amateur fights in 2018 2017 2016 something's not adding up here because you guys know how the game works once you turn pro you can't go back to ami so someone with more knowledge on the, on the topic here is this a topology error were those amateur fights like some like combat sambo fights that he did on the side? Like, what exactly is the deal here? Because this guy, if there's any truth to you know him losing that that fight by knockout in 2018, that's not a fucking amateur fight. This guy went pro in 2013. The way this shit works is once you go pro, you, you don't go back. You know what I mean? Like. I was, I'm not going to say what I was about to say, but I have a lot of questions about like the validity of this 13 and no record, but you know, we can sit here and talk semantics all day. Let's just break down how these guys match up. So Gadzi Omar Gadziev, man, obviously the guy's Russian and uh, you guys know Russians win a lot of fights. Not lately though. I've noticed a lot of these close fights, whether it was, Tagiru on Becca versus Tim Elliott, whether it was Peter Yan versus Aljo. Very close fights, not, no doubt about it. And there were some other ones too. The judges are not liking the Russian fighters in this day and age. So just keep that in mind. If it's if you think it's going to be a close fight, maybe don't bet the Russian because the judges are hating on Russians these days. That being said, this guy, Gadzi Omar Gadziev. So he's actually, he's Russian, but he moved to France to train at MMA Factory. I believe that's the name of the gym, right? Um, the gym that, uh, what, what's my boy's name? Nasruddin Imavov. Nasruddin Imavov, Cyril Gan, Alan Badeau. Like the, the gym that all those dudes train at, that's where this kid's training at. So at least we know he's got world-class looks in the gym as far as Cyril Gan and Nasruddin Imavov are concerned. Um, He's got the good people to work with. Now, his contender series fight, I loved the entry to that takedown. That was beautiful. I mean, the way the way he set up that takedown, I loved it. They got into some interesting scrambles, and he pulled off a knee bar, which you don't often see uh, in the UFC, let alone the middleweight division. Now, I know someone's going to correct me here. Hey, what about Rusimar Pagliares? He was in the middleweight division, knee-barring everyone. Hey, you got, you got me on that, brother. I got you. But um, basically what I notice about this dude's style is he's got that Russian coast. It's going to be very low volume on the feet, not going to take any unnecessary risks. But when it's time to go out there and shoot that takedown, I mean, the entries are beautiful. And from time to time, he can keep a lot of top control. And that's what you got to look out for. Now, with this kid, Kyle Boralio, he's an interesting cat for a lot of reasons. Like, on the feet, he kind of has, like, a bit of a karate style, man. Like, 
um, kind of bouncing back and forth. Hands are nice and wide, but when I say they're nice and wide, they're also very low. So on the defense side of things, I am worried about him getting clipped. Maybe not necessarily in this fight, but down the line, like so- someone's gonna, someone's gonna clip this guy because he fights with his fucking hands down. Like you guys know the deal. You fight with that style long enough, and uh, yeah, someone is gonna clip you eventually. But to his credit, you know he's only how how old is this kid? He's only, he's only 29. He's not even 30 yet. So he's still just entering his prime right now. Now, that was on the feet what I was referring to, the kind of karate style. Another thing about Kyle Boralio is he's actually a black belt under Damian Maya, and he's been a black belt under Damian Maya. Now, here's another one. If You guys, you guys got to correct me if I'm wrong here. He's either been training with Damian Maya for eight years or he's been a black belt under him for eight years. Someone make the distinction for me. But regardless, training with a guy like Damian Maya for eight years, that's the perfect look to come out here, you know, facing an opponent who you know exactly what he's going to do, man. You know exactly the fact that this dude, um, Omar Gadziev, he's going to be looking to get this fight to the mat ASAP. So, so basically, we don't really have much proof of Kyle Boralio's takedown defense. Like, I know he stuffed a few against these, you know, that Aaron Jeffrey guy, which, you know, no disrespect to him. He, he fought some tough dudes, but like, I think people were kind of overblowing that win a little bit. Uh, whereas I think the takedown attempts from this Omar Gazi have got, these are going to be real takedown attempts. Now, I don't have much footage, like, or like evidence to, to prove if Kyle can stuff consistently or what happens if he's on his back, is he just content to be like, Oh, I'm a Damian Maya black belt. I'm just going to lay on my back, throw up some subs and get neutralized. Or does this guy have the urgency to get back up to his feet? So that those, those are where the questions lie. But I do think on the feet that Kyle Boralio does have more activity than God's, um, than Omar Godziev, in addition to having a very tricky style on the feet. Like, if you're not used to that karate style, if you haven't been training with guys like that, it's going to be tough to deal with. But let me say this, guys. To Omar Godziev's credit, he has been training with Cyril Gan, who's got that, you know, that wide base, that wide stance, darting in and out, hands down. Nasruddin Imavov, also a very long striker. So at least the looks that Omar Godziev is getting in the gym, like, I would say both Imavov and Cyril Gan are better at that style of game than Kyle Boralio. So actually, Omar Gatsiev has seen this style. That doesn't necessarily mean he's good enough to beat it, though, because what I've seen is, you know, wait, circles on the outside, nothing, 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 throwing overhand right, right to a double leg. And his entries are beautiful. And if he can take down Boralio and avoid getting submitted, there's a chance he can grind him out here. I kind of do lean Boralio here because I do think that not only, you know, I think that when you got a guy like Damian Maya trying to grapple you for eight years straight, that's got to elevate your confidence in the takedown defense realm. Not to mention this kid's a black belt too. You know, he's, he's no, he's no joke on the mat. It's just since I haven't seen much besides these contender series fights and, and a couple of these other regionals, I don't know what happens if he gets taken down. Again, is he just content to play on his guard, throw up submissions, or does he have that urgency to get back up to his feet? 
if he's got that urgency to get back up to his feet, I think he's winning this fight. And since I'm having trouble picking a winner, I think it's a 50-50 fight. I'm going to lean with the dog, uh, Kyle Borraglio here. But, you know, it is, it is scary fading these Russians for sure. That being said, the judges have been hating on these Russians lately. So if this is a close fight, they're going to give it to Borraglio. So I'm going to go with Kyle Borraglio here for the upset. Um, let's see what happens. Now, next up in the featured bout, we got an, in the 170-pound division. We got Andre Fialio. He's 14-4, and four, taking on Miguel Baeza, who is 10-2. and two. And currently, they got it. Miguel Baeza, minus 185. The comeback on Andre Fialio is plus 160. I like this fight a lot because, firstly, both these guys are exciting. Andre Fialio is a dude that he's going to come out here and he's going to throw bombs. And I heard his interview, and he said, like, dude, when I'm in shape, I usually starch these guys in the first round. Miguel Baeza knocked out his last fight. Dropped against Matt Brown, which no shame in getting dropped against uh, Matt Brown. You know, the most finishes in UFC, uh, in UFC welterweight history. Second most Vicente Luque also fighting on this card. And real quick, my boy Rick the Ruler, you're the man. Hey, man, come on. 50 people, 50 plus people in here and only eight of y'all smash that like button. Guys, come on. Show me some love, please. Like, listen. I don't got no big fucking websites backing me and, you know, all these dudes kissing my ass or any shit. Like, I'm just doing this for the love of the game and to come out here and try to give you guys entertaining and informative content. So if y'all could do me that favor, smash that like button, hit that subscribe button. Like, I honestly wouldn't give a shit. It's just that that helps the the YouTube algorithm. That helps the show grow. So... If you guys could do me that favor and smash that like button and hit that subscribe button, I would truly appreciate it. But back to this fight. Fialio, he's a guy that – hold on. Fialio's a guy that can crack, man. He's a guy that also training at Sanford MMA as far as I know. He's going to come out here, throw big bombs, the calf kicks. He's a physical guy. And Miguel Baeza, what I like about him, also calf kicks – also a very long, rangy striker, and secretly a black belt in jiu-jitsu, trains out of MMA Masters. I like Baeza a lot. My question with Baeza is, where's his confidence at? You know, because what what strikes me about a guy like Baeza is that I'm not sure how he reacts to losing, man. Like, some guys can just brush it off, come back for the next one. But, and and, and this could just be all fucking smoke and mirrors and maybe i'm just way off on this theory but i truly think that miguel baeza came into the ufc thinking that he was untouchable thinking that he was just gonna steamroll everyone and get right to the belt and when you take those two losses the the pawns fight where you're putting on a clinic that first round you hit a wall and you get broken down the stretch then the chaos williams fight you know to add insult to injury getting knocked out by one of the hardest hitters in the division I heard Baeza's interview. He's talking about how, you know, now he's, uh, you know, seeing a sports psychologist. And to me, I actually don't think that's a bad thing. But to a lot of people, they view that as a red flag. They view that as mental weakness. I personally don't. I mean, Sodiq Youssef said that, uh, 
you know, he's been seeing a sports psychologist. What y'all think Sodic uses mentally? I don't. So I think Baeza had to do what he had to do. But that being said, where's his confidence at? Is he still that guy coming in here with that aura of invincibility that he truly believed he had? Like this guy thought he could be, he couldn't be touched. So basically this early going in this fight is what I think will be the most problematic for Baeza. Because Fialio comes out there, hell on wheels, man throwing big bombs and Baeza might be a little hesitant considering the fact that, you know, he was just knocked out, man. Like, you know, what's uh, where's his confidence at? And if, if Fialio can test that chin early, there's a chance for an early finish. My issue with Fialio, he's actually from Portugal, but I was going to say he's one of these gassing Brazilians. He's not Brazilian. He's from Portugal, but he's got a similar style to that kind of muscle bound guy that goes out there throwing those big bombs and, you know, if he can connect early, watch the fuck out. But as the fight progresses, that's where I'm worried about a guy like Baeza taking over. The calf kick starting to chop him down. Start to, you know, establish that jab. Maybe get a nice left hook in there. But I don't think it's going to be a blowout. I'll tell you that. I think it's going to be a serious fight while it lasts. I lean Baeza, but it's all about where's Baeza at up here, man? Like, does Baeza still have his confidence? Is Baeza... You know, still feel like he's the man. Because Fialio's got nothing to lose, man. Fialio just had that fun fight with Michelle Pereira where it was on short notice, man. And, like, I heard in his interview, he said, dude, when I'm in shape, which I am right now, that's when bodies hit the floor. So I'm curious to see if a body will hit the floor. I lean Baeza, but I am not going to be laying the chalk on Baeza in this spot. Now, also on the main card... We got a women's bantamweight matchup between Mayra Bueno Shitara Silva. She's seven and two, taking on Yanan Wu, who is twelve and four. And currently, they got it. Mayra Bueno Silva minus four seventy. The comeback on Yanan Wu is plus three seventy five. So it's important to mention that Mayra Bueno Silva is moving up to uh, one hundred thirty five pounds for this fight, which I think is probably the right move. You know, she was probably cutting a lot of weight and killing herself to make that. You know to make 125 so 135 might be a good look for her and, and the big talk of this fight um is about the price and i get why but i also like i'm sh and when i say this these kind of words i'm about to say like you got to understand i respect anybody that steps in there i'm just trying to be objective and and just fucking shoot the truth, man. You know, I'm shocked that Yana and Wu's lasted this long in the UFC. I mean, we're talking about someone that got dominated by Gina Mazzani and just cannot put it together and submitted Lauren Mueller in the first round, which is pretty cool. She's not going to submit Myra Bueno Silva here. Look, Myra, what I like about her is that she's one of the harder hitters. She At 25, she was. I'm curious to see how the power translates at uh, 135. You know, you look at that fight between her and Marina Moroz, and I bet on Marina Moroz at dog odds. The reason why was because it was the first fight ever with no crowd in attendance. You know, it was the same night that Kevin uh, Kevin Lee fought Charles Oliveira, right? So I was thinking to myself, like, um, Marina Moroz with the tennis sounds, with no crowd in attendance, the judges are going to hear everything. And, man, when I tell you I had to sweat that fight, I mean, those – fucking leg kicks from Myra Bueno Silva 
her punches. Like she is a hard hitter for that division. She might not have that many knockouts, but I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you when these girls get hit by her, they feel it. Um, and with Yanan Wu, I just I haven't seen that progression. I haven't seen those improvements. I'm still shocked that she's on the roster, to, to be honest with you. Um, but betting-wise, you know, personally, I'm not going to be laying no minus 500 here just because a lot of these fights tend to go closer than you expect them to. And maybe Yanan Wu has made some improvements. Who knows? Maybe this is one of those close split decision fights. So you're taking the shot. I get it. I just... I just don't like what Yanan Wu brings to the table. I do not trust her with my money, period. And I think that Maira Bueno Silva does have some good qualities, the hard hitting, the opportunistic submissions. Um, I just think she's meaner out there. I think she's tougher. And I think that if this is a loser leaves town fight, I mean, I think that Bueno Silva has got more upside inside the UFC's octagon, like on the roster. I think she belongs on the roster, whereas I've been questioning since day one if Yanan Wu does. So give me the big favorite here. Yeah, I'm not going to lay minus 500 on her, but, but give me the favorite here. I think that she can put a hurting on this young lady. What else we got? Next up in the featherweight division, we got Pat Sabatini taking on TJ Laramie. And currently they got it. Pat Sabatini, similar price, minus 485. The comeback on TJ Laramie is plus 385. Another interesting fight. Um, something I wanted to bring up about this one specifically. Now they got TJ Laramie listed at 5'6, but guys, between you and me, he's 5'4. And he's got a 66-inch reach. I just think he's too small. For the weight class, guys, like I just think that. But the issue is, you know, he's kind of he's he's a stocky guy, so I don't necessarily think that he could drop to to Bantamweight. You know, this guy actually has a win over Air Jordan back in the day, but that's neither here nor there. Air Jordan was just a kid at the time, and I think if they ran it back, we know who would win. But I I, I feel bad for TJ Laramie because it's like he's like one of those in between fighters, like. He's got the height to fight at Bantamweight, but he's so, like, stocky that I don't think he can cut the weight. So that's a concern, man. So, and with Pat Sabatini, listen, man, the dude's been, he's been doing his thing, man. He's impressed me, man. I mean, uh, to, to an extent, right? Like, to an extent. Um, I like the fact that he can overcome adversity, which we saw in the Jamal Emers fight gets floored in that fight, gets badly rocked, and a couple seconds later is pulling off submissions you don't often see inside the octagon. Then you look at his fight with Tucker Lutz, and, I mean, it was like a pick-and-fight. Tucker Lutz was like, you know, he had just beat Kevin Aguilar. People thought, like, hey, this is one of those dudes that pushes the pace. It was Pat Sabatini pushing the pace, going out there, hitting five takedowns in the fight. Um, even scored a knockdown in his debut against Tristan. So, like, we've seen him score knockdowns against guys that Michelle Pereira didn't knock that guy down. Now, I truly believe if Michelle Pereira and Tristan ever ran it back, that fluke would be uh, corrected. But I like the fact that from Pat, we've seen knockdowns. We've seen early subs. We've seen three-round fights where you can score, you know, five takedowns or more. Like, I, I, I like that about Pat Sabatini. Also comes out of a great camp. Comes from a good regional scene. With Laramie, you know, it's one of those things where 
you know, he is somewhat of a powerful guy. He's a stocky guy. Might not be as easy to take a guy like that down. You know, he's got that lower center of gravity. So he could make it interesting. Um, and I don't put much stock into the Derek Minner tapping him out in the first round uh, thing that just happened because I say just happened. It was fucking in 2020. Dude's coming off a serious layoff. It's just more so of a thing that Pat Sabatini also happens to be a submission specialist. But when you're talking about a kid as young as Laramie, what is he, 24 or something? Like, you're going to be seeing improvements. So I could see this one playing out closer than the line indicates. But with all that said, I still got to go with Pat Sabatini because I think I think the ceiling is higher on a kid like that, man. I think that he's shown the goods. Just got to keep developing, kind of keep getting that seasoning under his belt. It's a little bit more experience. Maybe we can look at him as a future top 25 guy or something like that. But also with uh, Laramie being as young as he is, you could be seeing two years off for a kid that young. Might come out here a brand new man. It's just the size, the size is the issue here, man. He's too small for the weight class, but he's too big for bantamweights. It's tough being in that no man's land. I feel for the kids. So the pick is Pat Sabatini, but, you know, everybody's saying it's going to just be this easy first round sub. And maybe it is. Maybe it is, right? Um, but I think TJ Laramie is going to come out here with a little bit more fight than that. And, and we'll see what happens. Maybe it's like kind of like a grind fest instead of like a early sub type ordeal. Now, Next up in the welterweight division, we got a matchup between Munir Lazez. Y'all remember the stunt, <laughs> the stunt my boy pulled last time? He's ten and two, taking on Ange Lusa, who is eight and two. And currently, they got it. Munir Lazez minus two hundred, and Ange Lusa is plus one seventy. I know Munir Lazez cost a lot of people a lot of money in that last fight, but. Take that away. I mean, well, let's not take that away. Let's talk about what happened. Firstly, Worley Alves, you already know the deal. That first round, Worley Alves, Worley comes at you, and if he gets you, he gets you. I mean, he got Colby Covington uh, back uh, back in the day, didn't he? Um, but so Munir Lazes is an interesting cat. You see that UFC debut against Razak Alhassan, and let me just pull up the numbers for that because, like, dude was out here fucking putting up numbers, man. Um, so what I liked about that is he, he goes out there, he attempted 194 strikes. He attempted almost 200 strikes, and then he also goes four for four on takedowns. Like, those are some beautiful numbers. But that next fight against Worley Alves, I mean, I think that – you know, after you put on such a dominant performance against Razak as a big underdog, and then all of a sudden they put you in a co-main event against a very established UFC vet who's paid his dues for a long-ass time. I mean, I truly believe the moment got to him. The pre He cracked under the pressure. That's 100% what happened there. Not not to discredit those beautiful kicks by Worley either. I mean, Worley went at him and took him out. Now with Angelusa, it, it, it's interesting because – he had that fight against Jack Della Maddalena, which was a very fun fight. And I believe in the first round it was. Let me just double check. 
shit. My memory's a little off here. But wasn't there like one round where Angelusa, like I said, I've been dealing with a lot of shit, so I haven't watched any tape on any of these fights, minus the main event. Wasn't there some a moment where Angelusa took him down, maybe got a full mount, maybe had like an arm triangle attempt, and props to Jack Della for for surviving that. Um, Jack Della seems like a stud, man. I've I've enjoyed what I've watched from him. But Angelusa, he seems to me like a very you know compact, physical, strong guy. He's gonna come out here get some takedowns, get some top control, and try to grind these wins out. And if Mu- if Munir Lezez, you know, back in the day, I've seen him taken down on multiple occasions. However, you know, now he's 34 years old. You can say he's either flat out in his prime or just about to exit his prime. Um, I've seen Munir stuff, and I've seen him survive on the mat with other guys. And it's also about how much did that Worley Alves fight not not take away from him physical physically, but how much did that, you know, what kind of effect did that have on a guy like this mentally? Because the kind of hype and the kind of expectations he had after his Razak fight to have such a, you know, letdown against Worley where you cracked under the pressure. You didn't even get to show anything in that fight. And we're not dealing with a, you know, a 28-year-old, a 25-year-old. We're dealing with a 34-year-old. Where's his mindset at? Is it a thing where he was like, man, I gave it my best shot. Maybe I'm just not cut out for this level. Or is it a thing where he went back to the drawing board, sharpened up his skills, learned from his experience, and is going to come out here better? That's my question with Munir Lazez. Because I do think Munir Lazez is the more talented of the two. But if he's not on his A game, if he's mentally checked out or broken or anything – and Lusa is that physical guy that can take him down, control him, and just kind of, you know, it might not be the most exciting fight, but, you know, there is a chance he comes out here and grinds this one out. I do lean Munir Lazez for the sole fact that I think I want to say he's got the more upside, but he had the more upside after that Razak fight. How much did that Worley Alves fight take out of him? Did it completely diminish his confidence? Does he feel like he doesn't belong anymore? Or is he coming in here with a chip on his shoulder with something to prove? I wish I could just get inside the mind and and just figure out exactly what the deal is here. But uh, hold on a sec. Christopher said move to Vegas is a good sign. Who, uh, Who moved to Vegas? I'm guessing Munir did because I thought... Ange Lusa was at Sanford MMA. So, um, but either way, either way, I think Munir's got the higher ceiling. It's just, is Munir still there mentally? If Munir is still there mentally, I think he wins this fight. Might have to overcome a takedown or two. But if Munir just shows up like a broken man, that's where Ange Lusa can come out here and, you know, get a lot of top control, grind out two of these rounds, win this decision. Okay, so Christopher says that Munir moved to Vegas. Do you know where is he training at Extreme Couture, at Syndicate? Um, let me know. Um, but I'm going to go with Munir Lazez to, to get this one down. Okay, he said Christopher said he saw him with Strickland. That means he was at, uh, I think, Extreme Couture. So good. At least he's training with some good people. So that that's a good sign. If he was a broken man, you can't be in there with guys like Strickland, Ankeleev. Chris Curtis, all, all those other guys, because those guys are going to push you and put you through the ringer. So at least at least we know that much. So 
Yeah. Okay. So let's go with Lazez in that fight. But it's cool to see Ange Lusa get his call back. You know, he fought on that same card, that XMMA card. My buddy Jared Gooden. Did you did y'all see Jared Gooden's destruction of Curtis Melender? Y'all know he's the only man to ever stop him via strikes, right? Y'all know Kevin Holland, Tiago Alves, Max Griffin, C.R. Bajarisada. None of those guys could finish Curtis. Even my boy Bilal didn't finish him. Jared didn't just finish him. You know, he didn't just take his back and submit him. He went out there and destroyed him standing. So look out for Jared to get another call soon. I just brought that up because Angelusa fought on the same card as him. Now, next up in the heavyweight division, we got two light heavyweights uh, fighting at uh, at heavyweight here between Devin Clark. He's twelve and six, taking on William Knight, who is eleven and three. And currently, they got it. Devin Clark minus one seventy five, William Knight plus one fifty five. So. Uh, my boy Dan Goldstein said the night train don't play. You know what I'm saying? And people forget he's only 28 years old, dude. Like he was still like going through his growing pains when he got to the UFC and still put up a tough fight with everyone he was in. Like four fights in his UFC career is fucking having co-main events on ESPN with Randy Brown. And you saw that front kick he ate and kept pushing. Like Jared will be back. He's a real fighter. You just got to give him some time to get a little more seasoning. I know he's got 27 pro fights, but he's still in his 20s. Like he's just give him some time. He will be back, and he's going to put on some more entertaining shows for you guys. But back to Devin Clark and William Knight. This is interesting because, like, William Knight, let's just let's just let's just keep it one hundred. He is not a skilled guy at all. I mean, he keeps his chin straight up in the air. His takedown defense is trash. He's small for the weight class. He's short, like for heavyweight stand. He's like five nine heavyweight. Right? But this dude can make up for a lot with his sheer toughness, his grit, his athleticism, his explosiveness, his power. Like, Will Knight is one of those guys that can be, like, losing an entire fight. Like, I think his coach told me a while back, Tyson Chardier, that he's got kind of like that um, that black beast factor where, like, you can take this guy down, you can dominate him. But when he explodes back up and it's his turn to touch you on that chin, uh you know, you're going to be snoring on that canvas, right? So it's just about with Devin Clark, I got to be honest, I've never been a believer, man. Like, I think that he's explosive. I think he's got good wrestling. I think he's experienced. I just, it's one of these things where he can give it. I just don't think he can take it to. He's been finished on multiple occasions, and some of them are uncomfortable to watch. Also, I've seen him break mentally in fights. But he, he's much more skilled, much more skilled than William Knight. But William Knight is much tougher than him. This is a tough one. This is a really tough one, guys. Because it's like, if Devin Clark just comes out here, don't fuck around uh, trading with this guy. I mean, you can trade with him because William Knight, that chin is fucking straight up in the air. His defense is horrendous. It's just that when it's his turn to land his shots – I've seen Devin Clark hit hit that mat on more than one occasion. So it could be a canvas now. It's just Devin, can like you fight smart and just take this guy down and hold him down for three straight rounds? Because if you do, you're winning this fight, bud. It's just I've always had an issue with how spastic Devin Clark is. Kind of has that 
old school Derek Brunson quality where he just charges in with that chin straight up in the air. He's spazzing out there. He's spastic. It's it's kind of ugly to watch, but he's the much more experienced guy. So I understand why Devin Clark is favored here. And I also bet on Maxim Grishin against William Knight. <sighs> Maxim Grishin is so much more skilled than Devin Clark. It's just like, Devin, like, can you come out here with the right game plan or not? Because if he doesn't, William Knight's a live dog. It's just, I don't know, man. This is one of those fights. They fight 10 times. You're seeing a different result every single time. You're seeing times when Devin Clark goes out here and grinds this guy out. You're seeing times when uh, William Knight goes out here and knocks this guy out. So. I don't know, man. I don't fucking know. Uh, but I'm a bigger fan of William Knight, so it'd be cool to see him get a knockout, but no no conviction on that. Now, next up in the Bantamweight division, we got a rematch 10 years in the making, gentlemen and ladies. We got Lena, the elbow queen, Landsberg. She's 10-5, and five, taking on Pani Kianza, who is 15-6. and six. And currently they got it. Panny Keon's at minus 410. They come back on Lena Landsberg is plus 330. So I get it. You know, people view this as a wide line, and it is a wide line. <laughs> Make no mistake about it. But um, they actually fought before, man. And word on the street is Panny Keon's uh, uh, took it to Lena Landsberg and, you know, treated her accordingly. And, and this was 10 years ago. Now Lena Landsberg's. You know, coming off having a baby, almost 40 years old. Panny Kianza is just starting to uh, enter her prime. So you got to lean with Panny Kianza here to just out-tough her, have the volume. I mean, all respect to Lena Landsberg, the elbow queen. You know, she, for her part of the world, man, I mean, she's one of the women's pioneers, you know, from, from her region, man. So tip my cap, Lena, you know. I got all the respect for you, young lady, but... I got I got to go with Panny Kianzad in the spot. You beat her like before you were even in your prime, when she was in her prime. Well, now she's exiting her prime, coming off having a baby, and you're entering your prime, and you got all this momentum behind you. So give me Panny Kianzad to win this decision. Now, next up in the lightweight division, we got a matchup between Drakkar Close. He's 11-2, and two, taking on Brandon Jenkins, who is 15-8. and eight. And currently, they got it. Drakkar close minus eight hundred. The comeback on Brandon Jenkins is plus five hundred. So <laughs> interesting, right? Because Drakkar close, no pun intended, often fights very close. But this kid Brandon Jenkins is just about is he quite ready for the UFC level? On one hand, I, I do believe he's paid his dues, and he's had some. Really nice knockouts. That one he had with Jacob Kilburn, that flying knee on PFL, that was beautiful. I've seen him hit spinning back elbows, uh, knee knockouts. Like this dude, they call him the human highlight reel for a reason. It's just oftentimes when he can't get that 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 knockout, he tends to break in fights. And one thing about this guy at close is he's very good at grinding out these decisions. But and, I mean, look at the level of competition uh, this guy close is beaten. I mean, Bobby Green, that's – even though it's controversial, still, the fact that he could make it controversial with Bobby Green, like I don't think Brandon Jenkins could make it controversial with Bobby Green. You feel me? Um, he's beat some guys. DeCasey, Lando, like these are all – Christos, like these are all like established like UFC fighters, right? So 
been in there with much better competition. It's just about, you know, what what's what's the deal with this concussion issue that he's dealing with? And guys, I was kind of shocked at like the disrespect y'all were putting on on Drakkar Close. Oh my God, if he got hit by a shove by Jeremy Stevens, what would have happened if he got caught by an overhand right by Jeremy Stevens? And it's like, well, firstly, if anybody takes an overhand right to the chin by Jeremy Stevens. They're probably getting knocked out. So I think that's kind of a stupid argument. And another thing is it's like, you know, word on the street is that Drakkar and Jeremy were like cool all week. They saw each other in the hallway, shaking hands. Seemed like it was just going to be a respectful battle. We go to the face-offs, we shake hands, do our little, you know, thing for the photo ops. And then the next fight, you know, we uh, we go out there and compete. But, you know, Drakkar close, I think he had like his hands behind his back during the face-off. You know, it was just nonchalant, chilling. And out of nowhere, Jeremy, it wasn't just a little push. It was a fucking shove and a half. And when you're not bracing for impact, like in a fight, you're ready for stuff to come at you. But when you're just thinking you're just going to have a nice little peaceful stare down, you know, go on to the next day, like I can see why that fucked him up, man. And um, the guy's been dealing with shit ever since. So... Where's he at confidence-wise? Where's he at brain-wise? Like, have these concussion, you know, has, has any of that shit healed up? I don't know. And then with that said, is Brandon Jenkins good enough to capitalize on, like, the worst version of Close, which is what I have a feeling we might see? I mean, you got to pick Jakar Close to win this fight, obviously, but minus 800, man, like, stop it. So I think it's a dogger pass situation. I personally won't. I'm not getting involved in this fight. I'm, you know, I like Brandon Jenkins. He's exciting, but you know what I mean? Like Jakar, if Jakar looks even like 50% of what he used to look like, of what he used to look like, it's not that it's going to be a blowout because Jakar fights are never blowouts, but like he's still probably going to end up grinding out the decision. So yeah, the pick is Jakar close, but think it might be a dog or pass if you want to fade the narratives about what he's been going through. Now, next up in the lightweight division, there's a lot of fucking fights on this card. We got Rafa Garcia. He's 13-2, and two, representing Mexico, taking on Jesse Ronson, who is 21-10, representing Canada. And currently, they got it. A dead pick em. Jesse Ronson, minus 110. Rafa Garcia, minus 110. So, yeah, there's the questions about you know, the steroid suspension. Some people say tainted supplements. Some people say, hey, you know, this guy's been around the game a long time. You know, because you, you, a lot of y'all don't know what happened um, with Jesse Ronson's first UFC run. Like, some of y'all noobs, and I'm not being condescending. I'm just, you know, stating facts. Like, this dude starts off his UFC career, goes 0-3, but here's the catch. It was, like, split decision losses to all studs, to Michelle Prezeris, to Kevin Lee, um, what, what was the other uh, split decision loss he had? There was one more. Let me look it up real quick. But, like, basically what I'm trying to get at is that he lost to all legitimate real guys on his first UFC stint. Um, it was – oh, Francisco Trinaldo. Like, do you understand what I'm saying here, guys? And all three fights were close split decisions. So he was in there with some real guys. And this is a guy that's been through the ups and downs. Like, when you talk about journeymen that have paid their dues, this guy is one of them. Been in there with everybody. Now he's on a two-fight win streak. I know the last one was overturned. But, dude, he he ran through uh, Nicholas Dalby, and that was impressive. I mean, Darren Till, 
didn't run through uh, Nicholas Dobby. Daniel Rodriguez didn't run through Nicholas Dobby. You can blame it on the steroids all you want, but I mean, like, it's not like it's not like this dude looked like Superman in there. He just caught a guy that gets caught often in a lot of fights. The only difference is he was able to capitalize on it. Now with Rafa Garcia, he's a tough Mexican warrior. Look, he's not the most athletic guy. You know, you're not you're not going to be blown away by this guy's physique. You might see him and be like, wait. <laughs> This guy's a UFC fighter, right? But but he's gritty. He's tough. He's hard-nosed. But I also feel like he's in a spot where, you know, a lot of these more experienced guys in the UFC are going to have something for him, man. Because you look at this, this level of competition that he fought outside the UFC. I'm talking about Rafa. And while, yeah, he compiled a 12-0 record. Beautiful job, buddy. But the level of competition was low to, to put it in context. He went five rounds with Humberto Bandene, like UFC caliber guys dispose of Humberto Bandene. And, you know, the Nasrat fight, I mean, y'all saw that fight, right? I mean, uh, he was going forward the whole time, still lost. The Chris Gritzmacher fight. Now, I think what happened in the Chris fight, I will, I will cut him some slack. Gritzmacher is one of those guys that you start teeing off on Gritzmacher and you get carried away, man. You think the finish is right there. You think, oh, my God, like this guy's a punchy bag. Just give me a couple more strikes and I'm, I'm getting him the fuck out of there. Um, and that's, you know, kind of like the downfall of a lot of these guys because they go after Chris Gritzmacher and they gas out from whooping his ass. And that's where a guy like Chris Gritzmacher comes back and beats you. And that's exactly what happened. And a similar thing happened just on a more brutal level against Joe Lozon and Chris Gritzmacher. Guys get carried away with Gritzmacher. I mean, they see this guy. He doesn't look the most athletic. He's kind of a punching bag early. They're like, dude, I'm just going to tee off on this guy until I knock him out. Then he's still there. Then you're huffing and puffing. Then he takes over. That's what happened. And then the Natan Levy fight, you know, shout out to my boy Levy. It's just, look, Natan Levy's only fucking six and one. He's just a baby in this game. I think Natan Levy's got a bright future for sure. But he's just a kid, man. Like that was, that was an experience thing. Whereas here is the opposite. This is a different kind of experience thing because Jesse Ronson has Jesse Ronson has more wins than than uh, Rafa Garcia has total fights. It's just about you know was it truly a tainted supplement? Was it actually steroids to where now he's going to come out here looking soft? But like if you give me like Jesse Ronson you know, the true grizzled vet coming in here with his A game. I mean, I think he's got something for, for Rafa just on that that experience just counts for so much. I mean, Jesse Ronson has literally been in there with so many elite fighters. Like, even some of these fights that he lost, my dude was out here with Nikolai Alexakin. You guys understand what I'm saying? You guys know who Nikolai Alexakin is? That shit was at uh, 170 pounds. This fight with Rafa is at 155 pounds. It's just about what can we expect from Jesse Ronson. That's what it comes down to. Can we expect, again, that seasoned, grizzled vet that's been there, done that? Like, Can we expect that? Or do we expect kind of a washed-up journey, man, after this, the suspension? So that's why I'm not sure. If it's a washed-up journey, man, I got Rafa. If it's the seasoned vet, Jesse Ronson, showing up at his best, then I got Jesse Ronson. So. 
both guys at their best, I got Jesse Ronson. It's just, are we getting both guys at their best? That's the big question. So that's why I got a lot of questions on a fight like that. Now, next up in the heavyweight division, this should be fun. We got a matchup between Chris Barnett. He's 22 and 7, taking on Martin Boudet, who is 9 and 1. And currently, they got it. Martin Boudet, minus 230. The comeback on Chris Barnett's plus, excuse me, plus 190. Shout out to, uh, hold on a sec. Dude, why are you spamming my chat? Like, Damien, like, we get it. Sterling won the fight. Like, and it was a hell of a fight, too. And props to Sterling, man. If you can take Peter Yans back for two rounds straight, see, that's all I, that's all I was waiting for to give him credit, man. I mean, like, you look at the first fight. And, I mean, I thought he was breaking in that first fight. But if you can go out there and fucking take Peter Yans back for two rounds straight, regardless who you score that first round for, you got my respect. You proved yourself. That's all I wanted, for him to prove himself or for Yan to go out there and put the icing on the cake. Sterling proved himself, so all due respect. But, yeah, stop, sp stop spamming my chat, man. I don't want to block you. I don't want to, like – just come in here and contribute to the chat, buddy. But, yeah, like, there's no ego here, man. Sterling did his thing. Props to him. I was in attendance. And, again, you can take Peter Yans back for uh, for two straight rounds. Hey, that's, that's very impressive. So, good for him. And now I can finally say I accept him as the champ. So, congrats. All right. But back to this fight uh, between Chris Barnett and Martin Boudet. Hey, so Chris Barnett's actually been training uh, down the street for me um, at my old gym, uh, Knuckle Up. I used, I used to train at Knuckle Up. Now I train at uh, at uh, Team Octopus. But, yeah, I know he's been getting some good work. He's been training with guys like um, Warren Thompson, who was a former glory striker. And, you know, my boy Jared Nitrin Gooden has been putting in some work there. So they got a lot of good guys there. So Chris Barnett's been doing his thing. My issue with Chris Barnett is, like, yeah, trying to be as respectful as possible. But, I mean, it's crazy how athletic he is for an obese guy. Like, goddamn, man, like, respect. And you're repping the A, so, you know, I got respect for you. But, like, this guy could get on in a – I don't know if this is true or not. My theory is if you could get the people at the PI behind him, he could drop a weight class or two, but it's going to take like a year or two to do it the right way. You can't just rush that weight off. It's going to be very unhealthy. But if he does it gradually over time, I, I think that he could drop weight. And, you know, he's a very, very deceptively athletic guy. Now with Martin Boudet, here's the thing about Martin Boudet. He's an actual real heavyweight. This is a big boy. And if you saw his contender series fight, Dude, so he pinned his opponent up. They had some, you know, some sketchy exchanges where Boudet did get caught a couple times. But he ends up pinning his opponent up against the, the fence. And he starts landing these knees to the thigh. And he literally broke his opponent with those knees to the thigh. And the reason I bring that up is because he's going to be the much larger man here. And if he can pin down a guy like Chris Barnett, pin him up against the fence, start working those knees, start – you know, just wearing on him. Let that size truly wear on him. That's where I think Martin Boudet uh, wins this fight. Now, I'm not sitting here saying Martin Boudet is a future top 15 guy. I'm not. He's not. But he's got the physical attributes and the toughness required to win this fight. But 
he does get tagged a lot, and Chris Barnett can do some unorthodox shit. So, you know, I'm not writing off Barnett. It's just that I think eventually the size of Boudet is going to wear on Chris Barnett, and I see him getting it done. But I'll be, I'll be rooting for um, Chris Barnett just because, you know what I'm saying, my boy trains down the street for me. He's repping the A, so much respect. And he's an NFC vet, so you know what I'm saying. But I, I'm going to go with Martin Boudet for the win. But as a fan, I'd love to see Chris win. Now, next up in the lightweight division, we got a matchup between Trey Ogden. He's 15 to 4, taking on Jordan uh, Leavitt or Levitt, who's 9 and 1. Currently, they got it. Trey Ogden minus 150. The comeback on Jordan Leavitt is plus 130. This is another interesting one because it's like Jordan Leavitt, not the most athletic guy, but for like a lower caliber, like entry level UFC fighter. You know, his, his scrambling game is on point, and he will be able to submit some guys from time to time. And if you're an entry-level UFC fighter, if you're a guy who's probably going to, you know, be a couple fights and gone, you know, done done with your first contract, those are the kind of guys that uh, Jordan uh, Levitt can beat. With Trey Ogden, it's an interesting situation because, like, I know people keep bringing up, oh, my God, he got submitted by Thomas Gifford twice. Yeah, but how come y'all bring that up, but don't bring up the fact that he finished a current UFC fighter, TJ Brown, in the first round? TJ Brown's on a two-fight win streak. He's been in the UFC over two years. Like, So basically what I'm trying to say is that like you can't say Trey Ogden's got zero business in the UFC. He's beaten. He's finished guys in the first round that are currently in the UFC. Has he made some bonehead mistakes along the way? Yes. And is there a chance he gets submitted here? Yes. However, I truly believe that if Trey Ogden can extend this fight, you know, Jordan Levitt, is it Levitt or Levitt? One of y'all let me know, man. But, like, Jordan can't scramble for three straight rounds. Jordan can come out there and dominate you early, get a quick finish, and, you know, go home and stuff like that. But if there's any kind of pushback, you know, if, if he takes the back of Ogden, and he can't get the submission. And then he gets bucked off. Then he's on his back. And Trey Ogden's grinding him out. Like, I just don't see Levitt coming back from stuff like that. Uh, I really don't. I think Levitt has to get it done in the first round and a half. And there's a chance he does. I mean, Trey Ogden, like I said, he's been submitted more than once. Um, Trey Ogden also training, you know, under James Krause. Take that for what it's worth. He's much more experienced than Jordan Levitt. So comes down to early, I go with Levitt. Late, I go with Ogden. I don't know, man. This one, I really do not fucking know. But I will say this. Trey Ogden, don't get submitted early like you have in the past. I think the odds shift in your favor, buddy. Like, I think that he's, you know, the more well-rounded guy. I think Leva is a one-trick pony. We know what he wants to do. The nonstop scrambles. He wants to take you down. He wants to choke you out. I don't, I don't see him slamming, knocking out anybody else anytime soon. I'll tell you that right now. But, yeah, basically... We know the dynamic of this fight. Not not in any kind of rush to bet a fight like this. I'm going to lean with Ogden, contingent on him getting past these first few scrambles, get me to that seven, eight-minute mark, and then I think you can take over with a more well-rounded game. But I've seen this dude dominate people, then dive straight first into a fucking guillotine now. It was like three, four years ago. So, you know, he's training under good people. He can make some improvements, but tough one. Tough one. I see it as a 50-50 fight. Uh, 
especially in the early going. But as the fight progresses, that's where I think Ogden can take over. So I'll go with Ogden, but, you know, no confidence on that one. Two more fights left, y'all. And I appreciate y'all sticking with me. Hey, do me a huge favor, guys. Please hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. And then also hit the retweet on Twitter. Comment on this. Share this. Like I said, all those little things you guys do help the show grow tremendously. You know, I don't have, like I said, I don't have these big websites pushing me. And when I say that, I'm not trying to throw a pity party. I have a lot of pride in the fact that I started this from the ground up and that you guys have been so loyal to me. And I just want to give you guys the most entertaining and informative content out there and just tackle angles that other people overlook. So that's my goal here. So if you guys can help me out with that subscribe and that like, the retweets, the comments, everything. Like let people know we're out here, you know, doing something a little bit different. So I appreciate that. And also, it was an absolute pleasure meeting everybody I met in Florida over the weekend, you know. Um, I met some fans at half the battle at the arena. It was pretty fucking cool, man. So I really respect you guys, and I appreciate you guys so much, and it means the world to me that – you guys enjoy this content, so I'm going to keep doing it for y'all. Now, next up in the strawweight division, we got a matchup between Sam Hughes. Uh, she's 5-4, and four, taking on Estela Nunes, who is 6-2. and two. And currently, they got Estela Nunes, minus 225. The comeback on Sam Hughes is plus 185. So here's my deal with this fight, y'all. Like, I definitely think Estela Nunes has the higher ceiling, for sure. I mean, I do like the fact that she's aggressive. I like the fact that she throws her, her punches down the middle. I like the fact that she goes for it. Here's my issue with Sam Hughes. She definitely fought the better level of competition, no questions asked. I mean, Tisha Torres for her debut. I mean, is that not like the scariest debut you could get for in a 115-pound chick? What I'm trying to say is like, you're going from fucking fighting Danielle Hinley, who was four and one, Vanessa Demopoulos, who was four and one, Lisa Malden, who was three and one, Bethany Christensen, and a bunch of other fighters who are O and O. Hey, here's Tisha Torres in her UFC debut. You understand what I'm saying? So she got thrown right to the wolves and probably didn't even get a proper chance to like develop on the regional scene. So I feel for her. And then in these fights, I feel like she's holding back a lot, guys. I feel like Sam Hughes is hesitant in there. You know, she's not really committing. She's not really letting it all go, and and, and that's a big issue, man. And, um, yeah, and, and that's not going to go well because, like, with Estela Nunes, even though she needs some experience herself, at least she's aggressive. At least she's willing to go for it. So I do lean Estella. It's just, am I willing to play minus two something on her? No, I'm not. Like, I think people are putting way too much stock into that Carnalosi fight. Let me explain what I mean. Did Estella Nunes land some nice shots on Carnalosi? Yes, 100%. But guys, what is Carnalosi's style? It's like that Jessica Andrade style where, you know, power can override technique in the women's weight classes. And... Fighters like Carnalosi and Jessica Andrade, they get hit a shit ton. You guys know that. You guys know they don't move their heads. You guys know that they consistently get tagged and tagged and tagged. So just because she tags someone who blocks punches with their face, like I don't think that's necessarily going to happen here. Reason being is that Sam Hughes is more hesitant. Sam Hughes is going to be fighting on the outside. She's going to be running away. 
So it's going to be up to Estella to go out there and track her down. But with all that being said, uh, uh, Dirty Rex and Nuna seems a bit overrated. Yeah, at minus two, whatever, I agree. It, 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 that is the case. But the dynamic of this fight is I just can't get behind that hesitancy of Sam Hughes. It's like she... It's like she just doesn't belong in the UFC yet. She needs some more seasoning on the regional on the regional scene. So I think Estella wins off aggression, but I ain't trying to lay no price like that on her. So give me Estella just off that forward pressure, just off just off wanting it more. That's how I think she wins. But you know how many fucking split decisions we've been seeing in these women's fights? Like, so. And maybe she finally has that fucking. You know, fire lit under her ass. Maybe she got that chip on her shoulder and she wants to come out here and fucking prove something. But based off these last three, I mean, the only thing she can prove is that she's been running away from her opponents and is just not ready for this level. But is Estella Nunes ready? I don't know. I lean Estella because she's more aggressive. I think she's more willing to go for it. Therefore, I think the judges will favor that more. But it, it might be a tough dynamic when Sam Hughes is literally running away from her the whole time. So... I'll take Estella Nunes, no bet. And last but not least, in the Bantamweight division, we got a matchup between Haile Alatang. He's 14 and 8, taking on Kevin Kroom, who is 21 and 4. Currently, they got it. Haile Alatang, minus 170. The comeback on Kevin Kroom is plus 150. This fight is interesting for a variety of reasons. Firstly, uh, Kevin Kroom is dropping back down to 135 pounds, which, give me one second, because I had this pulled up earlier. He has fought there before. Let me just pull it up. Okay. So, last time Kevin Kroom fought at Bantamweight, because you guys know, he fought at lightweight against Roosevelt. He fought at 45s against Caceres and the other person he fought. Um, so now he's actually dropping another weight class to Bantamweight. And last time he fought at Bantamweight, he missed weight. by, by uh, He weighed in at 137 pounds. But to his credit, he actually won the fight. So he's got a history of winning fights that uh, he misses weight in. Uh, my, my issue with Kevin Kroon, well, firstly, the positives are Dude, how big of a fucking Bantamweight is this guy going to be? He's listed at 5'11", but I heard some people saying the dude might be like 6'1". He is a big boy. And he's a guy that in 21 wins, he's got 10 by submission. He's got 6 by knockout. Um, but when fights go to decision, that's where he's got the losing record. And then on the other side with Haile Alatang, when you talk about a tough warrior – like, y'all saw that Casey Kenny fight? You know how many people could have easily taken a knee, not answered the bell, um, not not answered the bell between rounds, and just said, hey, I'm going to live to fight another day? But this dude, Haile Alatang, goes out there with Casey Kenny, man. And listen, he got his ass whooped, but he took his ass whooping like a man. And that's something I respect. He goes back out there um, against Gustavo Lopez. I thought he won the fight. Look, he got a point deducted. Had he not gotten that point deducted, he would he would have won the fight. Um, but it's also sketchy that he's grabbing the fence, you know, which means he might have prevented some takedown attempts, which who knows how the fight would have gone had that not happened. Um, but I still thought that Highly won two of those rounds. So I, I scored it for him. It, it, it's a tough one, man, because it's like this is Highly Alatang's proper weight class. 
Kevin Kroom, super experienced guy, but how's this weight cut going to go for him, right? Um, and, and Kevin's huge for the weight class, dude. So I lean highly Alatang, man. I, I think that, again, this is his weight class. And one thing that I haven't liked about Kroom is that, or I do like this, that he goes balls to the wall. Like, again, as a fan, you love seeing guys that just go out there, give it everything they got. But on the flip side, he'll tend to fade down the stretch in fights. And that was at like 45s, guys. What's it going to be like cutting this extra weight having to go down the stretch? That's where I'm worried for a guy like uh, Kevin Kroon. And word on the street, and, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't Haile Alatang doing this fight at a uh, fight ready. So I, I expect his conditioning to be top-notch, not to mention this is his weight class. So give me Haile Alatang to come out here and win a win a decision here well guys now we got to talk about the fight to watch and the fighter to watch so not to bore y'all but guys let's fucking just keep it 100 the fight to watch here is the motherfucking main event you got number four versus number five vicente luke taking on Bilal muhammad title implications on the line there's literally a welterweight tournament going on hamza just fought burns hamza's allegedly fighting colby Leon and Kamaru are supposed to do the dance here soon. And you got Vicente versus Bilal. I mean, this reminds me of the days when, like, remember when I think it was Machida versus Bader and Shogun versus Brandon Vera. And they had, like, a little 205 tournament that night. Most impressive win gets the title shot. I think I think that's kind of what we're dealing with here. So for that reason, Vicente versus Bilal is, is my fight to watch. And... A fighter to watch is Bilal Muhammad. Listen, man, this is someone who is consistently disrespected. Oh, he only goes to decision. Uh, are you a betting man or are you a fanboy? Because if you're a betting man, then who gives a fuck if he goes to decision and, and wins for you, right? But, yeah, as a fan, how can you not love Vicente Luque, second most finishes in welterweight history, if he finishes Bilal Muhammad tied with Matt Brown with most finishes in welterweight history? So, you know, um, but with Bilal, I think he's got a lot to prove. I feel like people still don't take him seriously. People were out here laying like minus 240 on Wonderboy. I, I cashed an easy plus 200 on, on Bilal in that fight. And instead of giving Bilal his credit, oh, Wonderboy's old, Wonderboy's washed up. Roo, roo, roo. Yeah, but who the fuck has ever gotten a 30-25 against Wonderboy Thompson? So I still think Bilal truly flies under the radar, and he's got a lot of pressure in this fight. I mean – and I'm curious what Friday night when he goes to bed, I wonder what that's like knowing that like, hey, I'm going in there with the guy that knocked me out at Madison Square Garden. Like that's when the nerves start to kick in. That's when you start to have those second thoughts. But I think that this guy is so mentally strong that I think we're going to see a completely different fight. So for that reason, Bilal Muhammad is my fighter to watch. Well, guys, we did it. It's going on this Saturday night live at the Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada. Y'all do me a huge favor, smash that like button, hit that subscribe button, um, share, comment, like, retweet, all those little things y'all do help the channel grow tremendously. And we just want to keep doing this. I don't want any hands out, handouts. I don't want any bullshit. I want to grow this organically, be my show. When I have the fighters on, ask them the questions no one asks. And when we break down the fights, bring up angles and you know, talking points that, that no one else is talking about. So I'm just very grateful you guys are here for me. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Also to everybody I met in Florida, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you guys as well. So to the fans, 
truly, truly appreciate you all. It means the world to me that you guys are here with me. Make sure you all subscribe to Half the Battle on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify. All the places podcasts are available. Follow me on Twitter at Best Fight Picks. I'll be back next week for the next card. Going to get another Tuesday night, uh, Dan's Tuesday night contender uh, lined up this Tuesday. And yeah, and always hit me up on, on Twitter, man. If I don't follow you, I don't get your notifications. But if you DM me, my DMs are open. Y'all can message me anytime. Always down to interact with anybody that supports me and has my back. And just know I got y'all's back. So thank you guys very much. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.